much, there's much to do when it comes to obedience personally, in our conscience, in our personal lives. But not all of the things that we do in obedience is necessarily prescribed for every believer in obedience. However, there are some things the Bible is clear that all people should do. Let me give an example of both. The first, some people have this idea that it's a sin to use alcohol or to watch movies or to take pictures. Um, but we know that the Bible doesn't say that either of those three are sinful. Actually, the Bible would tell us that we have the liberty to enjoy those things. Yet there is an issue when it comes to our conscience. We feel like we should not be doing it or that we are controlled by something or that we've made an idol of something. Then personally, we may abstain from those things. That's a personal obedience. But then the Bible would tell us very clearly to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So these are not subject to our own conscience. These are subject to basically our salvation in the sense that we as those who have been saved by grace and filled with the Spirit of God are compelled to know that this is something that we must be doing but we do that not because we are forced to do or that we're obligated to do or it's some kind of spiritual chore that makes God happy. We do it because we enjoy honoring the Lord until we don't. And then when we don't, we find ourselves in a place of disobedience. But at the same time, even in our obedience and our disobedience, our stand before the Lord has not changed. And that's the most important reality of what it means to understand the gospel, the good report of salvation in Jesus Christ. So therefore, we find our identity in Christ, and in doing so, we find our identity in our obedience. Do we not? We find our identity in this world by how we dress, by what we enjoy, by the hobbies we have, by the job that we keep by the place that we live, by the sports team that we follow. And sometimes, you know, that's all that people know about us. Some people think that our identity is our name, but as we've learned last week, when it comes to obedience, it's because of whose we are and who we are. And that's sort of where I left it off, and I talked about, the last thing I spoke about is understanding obedience beyond legalism about the intrinsic versus the extrinsic motivation, the internal and external motivation to obey. And I think I said it this way, that obedience stemming from the inside, internally motivated, driven by our internal faith and our internal beliefs, is more authentic and enduring than out external obedience because, which is driven by rewards or pressure or fear or anxiety, because it is pure. It is motivated by something greater. It's motivated by our understanding of who we are in Christ. Thus, our identity is formed in our obedience to Christ. And that's sort of where I left it last week. So we have an intrinsic response in obeying the Lord Jesus rather than adhering to a set of rules and functioning in such a way that we fear Jesus. Now, we've all been... <clears throat> on both sides of the crazy coin when it comes to obeying things. We've all been on that coin spinning around on its head and rolling down into the toilet. And we've gone on both sides of, of, of absurdity in this way. Some of us have been oh, judgmental, there's the best word, of others because we see them doing, acting, thinking, or living in such a way that we don't approve of. And then we've also been the target of those things, have we not? Whether we know it or not, you have been. There's been somebody in the church or in the community or somewhere along the way who has looked at you and thought, yeah, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And we have said the same thing. And yet I'll remind us as we look many times in the preaching of this church, we always look at that parable that Jesus talks about, about the publican and the Pharisee, and that the publican tore their clothes and dared not lift their eyes to heaven and said, propitiate for me a sinner, while the Pharisee said, thank you, God, that you've done such a mighty work. Thank you, God, that I'm not like them. Thank you, God, that I'm able to be disciplined and tithe, etc. Now, there's something that needs to be said 
as we continue in this conversation. And the first thing is this, is that no one is prescribing what we would call antinomianism or licensure. To just carpe diem, live how you want to do, do what you want to do. It doesn't matter. God doesn't have really a standard anymore because Christ has paid for it. Now, while this can be true in some tongue-in-cheek sense philosophically, it is not true literally and theologically. We know that the Bible tells us to honor others, to submit to one another, to speak with grace, seasoned with salt, to not think of ourselves greater than another, etc., and so on and so on and so forth. To put away this and to put away that and to put away sexual immorality and to not steal but work honestly with our hands. We're not fools. We know what is good and prudent and wise. But because we are recipients of the love of God in Christ, we know that there is no condemnation even when we fail to perform these things. And even when we do perform these things, they are to a minimum standard. They are not to righteousness. But they are because of righteousness. As Peter continues in this letter, and I said this last week, but I have to say it again. These first two verses, excuse me, these first two verses and this first section here all the way down into verse 21 of chapter 1 is going to be the loud proclaiming megaphone of who these people are and what they have received and what God has done for them. Without this clearly in their minds, they will not understand the simple application of everything else that's been said, especially when we get to chapter 3. And I want you to be in prayer for me because over the last 23 years, I can't say 25 because I don't have journals for some reason on those first two years, but over the last 23 years, I have been troubled and battling with things that I cannot stand. And I'm going to be honest with you, that I cannot stand about biblical interpretation. Can't stand it. There are things that trouble me. There are things that bother me. There are things that seem out of place in Christendom, in evangelical life, in Protestant life, in Reformed tradition. But the beautiful thing is, is that if I stick to the Word of God and I look at the Scriptures and I continue to, to, to be reminded and meditate on that which God has shown me from even childhood in His Word, and most importantly, I keep front of mind who I am in Christ and who you are in Christ. If we keep front of mind who we really are and our identity, we will parse out these little nuanced disagreements in our own heads. But I'll tell you this, beloved, it is okay to disagree and to not understand and to not like something. And you have freedom and safety in the confines of this spiritual family to say, I don't like that. And you will not be judged. You will not be relegated to the apostate pile. And you certainly will not be tagged reprobate. It is okay to not believe certain things. Or not understand them. Because in time, we believe sovereignly, God will teach us all things. So, enough with the psychology. Now let's get into a couple of things about obedience beyond legalism. The religious context here, the spiritual context, is that grace-based obedience is not a means, and this is repetitive, but is not a means to earn God's favor. That's legalism. But a response to the grace already received in Christ, like Galatians 2, and it's a reflection. I want you to hear this, beloved. Obedience is a reflection of our new identity in Christ. It's a reflection. Because we have been, what? Sanctified by the Spirit. We've been set apart by, the, by God the Holy Spirit. And I've really been working through some, some of my theology about God the Spirit. Just, it's amazing. I had to go back and sort of think like a second grader. And now it's becoming extremely clear. That's another day. But we come to reflect our identity in Christ. We've been sanctified and set apart, made holy by the Spirit of God through the 
through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the satisfaction of this work that God has done. And because of that, now we are something different. In 2 Corinthians 5, we see that our identity is found in Christ, that our actions and then our choices are rooted in our relationship with Him. <coughs> Some weeks ago, I, I, I did a little... What, what, is, what does Trey call those things? My, my soapbox or my sidebars? I, did, I had a couple of sidebars, and, and um, one of them was about a biblical worldview. And my head was running in a thousand directions, and it comes out of my mouth as often not really clarifying or useful. But I will tell you this, that when it comes to a biblical worldview, at the center of that, of course, is the gospel of grace. And then in the same spot, underneath the blood of Christ, is who we are. Our identity. So Peter tells these people that they are the what? The saints, the elect exiles. He defines who they are by saying where they're from and where they are in the context of the dispersion. He tells them who they are according to the foreknowledge of God and His sovereignty and His electing love. He tells them who they are that because the Father loves them, they have been set apart, made holy, righteous, declared to be God's people. How? By the Spirit of God Himself. For what reason? To obey Christ. That is the reason. To obey Christ. Jesus even says it that way, right? He says that if you love me, you will do what I tell you to do. If you love me, you will obey my commands. And the commands, as John puts them in his first epistle, are not laborious. They're not a grief. Because they are fueled out of the obedience of Christ. And then he says, and for the sprinkling with this blood, grace and peace be multiplied to you. If you don't remember the first sermon in this series, which was four weeks ago, go back and listen to that. Because it's instrumental on us understanding the adhesion of the rest of this letter. There's a couple of theological implications I want to address before we move forward. First is that obedience should be understand as a, understood as a fruit of salvation. And the second thing is that obedience should be understood in the context of Christian freedom. Let me say those two things again. Obedience should be understood as a fruit of salvation, as something that comes out of salvation. To what level? We'll talk about that as we, as we move forward. We already talked about sanctification, right? So go back and listen to that last week or the week before. But then also obedience in the context of Christian freedom, of liberty. Obedience is not restrictive. Obedience is not something that keeps us from doing something. Obedience is what opens the gates for us to do what we love. So sanctification, as we've learned, is a definitive act of God, a de declaration of God, and it sets the stage for our life of obeying the Lord. This obedience is not self-generated. I think the Bible teaches us very clearly that as Paul would say in Ephesians, he says what? He says that we are God's workmanship. That means we are God's doing, out of God's hands and God's power. And we'll get into the Psalms in just a minute because I want to read something out of there for you. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared before the foundations of the world for us to walk in. So that even when we are walking in love for the Father, also known as loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, and then the greater intimate love also acting, doing for others as we would want, us, as we would want others to do for us, we see, we see very clearly that this is freeing. It is something that God the Holy Spirit is effecting in us. So we don't have to get up in the morning and wring our hands and go, Oh, I just don't know if I can obey. Hallelujah. You tell the truth. I just don't know that I can love others. Absolutely. It's not intrinsic. Even people, think about this for a second. And I don't want to make an indictment. This is just generally speaking. I think that even people that we would deem are great and loving, even and especially unbelievers would say these are the most loving people. They have genuine compassion. They have genuine empathy. They can take themselves into the place of feeling the feelings. 
even in an unbeliever, and even in a believer, I think sometimes, not sometimes, all the time, there is an element of fleshliness in those things. How? Sometimes it comes off the backside. Feigned humility. That's not me, it's the Lord. Father, thank you today that I was able to love this person actively and willfully, for it's not in me, and when it is in me, I feel pretty proud of me. You see, the, you see it? I mean, let's just be honest. Let's quit pretending that we're walking in this bumper sticker reality of wearing the Christian t-shirts and the, and the wristbands. Let's just be honest. We're showing out. We're showing and telling. We're trying to let the world see that we love Jesus so much that we stick it on the wall and paint it on our cars. And every missionary journey from here to hallelujah is archived somewhere on some social media site. Let's get a picture of us praying over there. Let's get the Bible out and get a picture of us praying. Johnny, so be praying. Put up that party hat. It's supposed to be serious, man. We're about to have some worship. Shut your mouth. I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm not bringing an indictment. We're unaware that these are the realities. I'm just telling us, brothers and sisters, we are not pure in our obedience to God. We are not pure in our love for others. But by the Spirit of God, He works even in our impurity to bring out pure love and ministry to others. So it doesn't matter what our motives are. Just like when Paul is talking to the Philippians, and he, they're really upset these charlatans are making hand. They're, just ba they're banking on the fact that Paul's out of the way and he can't keep them off the street, so they're emulating his message. They don't believe it. They have no concern whatsoever. They're getting the offerings at the end of the services. <coughs> and, you know, and Paul's out, let them preach. They're preaching the correct message. Who cares what their pretense is? If Paul is satisfied in that, we know that God is satisfied in that. So I don't, and beloved, listen, I'm going to say some things in the next few months that are going to really, it's going to, I've been working through them for the last two or three years, and some of those for the last two decades. You're going to hear them for the first time, and I'm going to pray that God would give me the sensitivity to go, okay, what I'm about to say, we're going to work it and unpack it, and show you biblically where I've come from, instead of just rushing through like a freight train and hoping it all lands. But there are some things that we need to be aware of that we're just not right about. That we're just not right about. And one of those that I've learned is there are a lot of heretics out there, theologically, who love people better than the ones who have the security of the gospel of grace. And I think we need to learn from them what love looks like according to Christ. You heard me mention this a couple of weeks ago that I was rebuked and I said, well, I retract the rebuke. I take it back. I don't, want, I don't accept it anymore when someone rebuked me for saying that the cults often love greater than the church in America. It is the truth. It is the truth. If you look at my most recent publishing, which is about 1.30 this morning, You'll see where I'm going with that. So what does it mean then? If our identity is bound in the gospel, in the blood of Christ, in the person of Christ, and our identity is also doubly found in the obedience that we have in freedom, for freedom you have been set free to live under the grace of God, what are some practical things? Well, before I move on, let's talk about a couple of those things that this freedom, that this identity, that this point of obeying in love. Remember, we're talking about love, and I'll get to it in a minute. I just don't want you to be sitting here making a laundry list of things you need to do to obey. Because if, why is stealing from your neighbor wrong? Because it's hateful. <laughs> you're taking what they've worked hard for. You're not loving them if you're stealing from them, whether it be their money or their house or their spouse. It, it, it's not loving, Right? So it all boils down to loving God by loving others. And you can take the Decalogue. What is that? The Ten Commandments of Moses? You can take that and you can break it down into every, every iteration is about love. It's about love. That's why Jesus said what he said. 
Just like the apostles define Old Testament theology, they actually make it clear Jesus does the better job and he taught them. And when Jesus says that the greatest of all the commandments is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and the second of equal standing is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Without this grasp of how it is applied in our lives, we are just walking theological encyclopedias. We have no purpose. What does Paul say in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 of someone who is just repeating the mantra, you're a clanging cymbal or a banging gong, or like I put it into contemporary times, for those of us who've had toddlers, a pot lid and a wooden spoon. I swear that'd be a great object lesson. Have one of y'all's kids just ding, ding, ding while we're in the service. Yes. See, that's not love. <laughs> it's not love when the kids do it. Because it, it, it rakes against the very nature of our DNA. Makes us want to kill things that are precious to us. Ding, 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 ding. That is the theological fortitude of people who have no love. Making sense? You've got to look at the Bible with the central thread of it all. The glory of God, that means how he's seen, like in his birthday suit, nothing held back, everything's obvious. We're going to look at him for what he is. That's what glory means. The one thing that he has revealed to us and the only thing he's revealed to us is that he is love. And the implementation of that love and the application of that love shows justice and righteousness and wrath and all these things, but it's all about love. And Trey has preached that. Thanksgiving weekend 2020. And it ripped, it ripped some people's souls out to say, in a sense, the exact same thing I just said, but he said it in about 12 seconds and I said it in about four minutes. I stand behind it as viable as the thread of the entire Holy Writ. It is the undercurrent of God's glory that all that he is and always will be and ever has been is love. Because when we start compartmentalizing God, we make him human. So what's it going to do for us? We get the application at the beginning, we might think a little bit differently of what we're about to hear. The first thing is, I believe, obedience cultivates a responsive heart. Any discipline is going to have a little bit of resistance, even that which is very good. And especially if there's anxiety or stress or PTSD or any type of trauma related to anything in our lives, we have to do them. You know, it's just like after Matthew, Hurricane Matthew, not the person Matthew. Matthew's like, what did I do? Anyway, uh, you know, after Hurricane Matthew is the first time I've ever experienced that type of power. And helplessness. And as I heard it, you know, peel up the layers of my roof, and I sat there in the darkness, sitting in the chair with nothing to do but keep the towels as the water ran down the back wall of my house, both stories. And I'm sitting there thinking, we're going to perish. And that under rumble and that roll of that constant wind. created a, a trauma in me that even when I couldn't hear it with my audible ears, anytime there was a low rumble, I began to panic and I had great anxiety and I didn't know what was going on. And that was the beginning of the end for, my, for the season of sanity for me. Heavens to Betsy, if I saw a cloud or there was some storm coming, which used to, I'd walk out and look and I'm like, oh, this is neat. I'm like, oh, the anxiety, the stress, the, this trauma is real. I was sitting at my desk about a year and a half later and every afternoon at the same time I started to feel the same anxiety, the same absolute terror. I'm like, what is wrong with me? I go drink a glass of water, I go outside and walk over Come to find out one day I'm sitting there around the same time and it came again and I heard the rumble. And the military base was doing tank training or something. I could not hear it audibly for the weeks before, but my body could feel the vibrations and it was causing me to remember in my body, because the body keeps the score, the trauma of that experience. So what do you do? You learn. 
Now, what's this got to do with love? Because, beloved, sometimes when we love people, they hurt us. I want you to hear that. Sometimes we love people and they hurt us. They turn around and bite us. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's unintentional because of the trauma or the pain that they may be going through or the illness. But just the same, it's there. You ever said something sharp to your spouse or to your family? You can't unsay it. You can't wind back the remote and go, oh, I'll keep my mouth shut on that. No, it's there. Even when it's reconciled, it's always there. When you smell smoke, you think there's a fire until you realize there's no fire. So when we go to love others, it's not always going to be easy. But the more we expose ourselves to the positive outcomes of these disciplines, the positive outcome of love, the positive outcome of the fact, you know what? I'm safe. It's okay. The more responsive our heart will be. If we engage in regular spiritual disciplines, not just loving, but the spiritual disciplines that the Bible calls us to, what are they? What are these things that we're supposed to be doing? Praying. <coughs> you know what my prayer life's been the last few months? Last night I laid in the bed and I just prayed that God would help me pray for an hour. Prayed that God would help me pray. And that's all I prayed over and over again, talking to my father that I am not able to focus and pray like I used to be. And I feel distant spiritually because of that. Meditation. Gospel meditation. Physical meditation. Breathing meditation. Whatever it is, all sorts of focused attention on certain things. Spiritual discipline. Beloved, you can pray all you want to, but if all we're doing is talking, then we're not growing. We've got to meditate. And if all we're doing is reading, 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 and studying, 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 highlight, highlight, and journaling, see, this is me. I always have a conversation going, so I like to redirect the conversation because I'm a very controlling person. So I direct my thoughts on paper, and I write, and I write. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that I write hundreds of pages a week of journaling. Half of those may be audio, the other half may be on my phone. But when I die, <laughs> I hope it all burns down. Because some of that stuff, y'all don't want to read. But we've got to take time out sometimes to think. The Scripture talks about renewing our minds. Obedience to the Bible includes understanding these things. Engaging in this, the discipline of meditating on Scripture. And then studying Scripture. But why do we do it? Here's why we do it often in the world that we live in. Because we're supposed to. Because we have to. No. That's not why we do it. Remember how many times you've probably heard me say that when we're dealing with a sin that seems to overcome us, the worst thing that we could do is to constantly focus on the sin that's overcoming us and trying to put it away. It's like the old band-aid, rubber band, stupid stuff on lust. I wish I could backhand the youth pastor that created that. You walk around a summer camp and you hear pop, pop, snap, 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 pop, pop, pop. It's misogynistic for one and I don't want to get into it. The purity culture has killed intimacy and killed grace, and killed a lot of things. You can read that book next year. But we need to understand that we do these things, and when we struggle in these disciplines, we just need to focus on the cross. We need to focus on the gospel. We need to focus on the love of God for us, because that focus seals our identity in our own mind. Then the outflow of that is a relaxed casual discipline you ever you ever put discipline and casual and relax in the same sentence no but that's the problem spiritual disciplines are at rest at rest in the gospel of grace these people in this dispersion are suffering greatly in a lot of ways and peter's going to tell them that that suffering is worth something and that they need to rest in the finished work of christ the one whom they love but has never seen and still don't see now see, that's tough. Because what we want is, I'm going to read my Bible and things are going to happen. I'm going to pray and miracles are going to take place. I'm going to meditate on what I've learned and I'm going to become this amazing Christian without any problems. <clears throat> Steve Harvey can't find it. It's not on the board. It's not there. You're not going to get the answers Sorry, you're looking for. You're not going to get it. 
if you're not resting. And when we do all this, this practical application of cultivating response of heart through these disciplines, we will begin to understand the will of God through His Word. And it will transform our lives and our desires and our actions. Something else I think we need to do. Number two, practical application. We need to live authentically in community. This is big. This is big, and it's hard because when we are trying to do things out of obligation, it's hard to live authentically because we're always shielded and guarded. So we practice obedience in the context of the Christian community. First and foremost, why do we do that? Because of all places, we ought to be able to love one another in the family of faith. But unfortunately, it's become the hardest place to love each other because we're not living all authentically. We're not being ourselves. We don't even, some of us know who we are. Well, yeah, I know who I am. My name's Bob. That's not who you are. Well, I'm a teacher. That's not who you are. That's what you're called and what you do. Well, I'm a Christian, okay, but what does that mean as far as your identity? Questions to ponder. Not going to find an answer for that today, are we? So we understand that we're called to encourage. How does that look? As long as it is called today, what? We encourage one another. We build, build each other up that we may mature into love. Paul, uh, Paul talks about that in Hebrews. Peter is going to do the same thing here. Exhort one another. Encourage one another. Paul even says to the church of Ephesus that we're to grow up in the maturity into the head, like our head, to mature. And the whole test of maturity is resting, hopeful, love. Encouraging love. Not controlling love. Not rebuking love. Not correcting love. Although you can love in those things. There's a very small context in which we have the right and the occasion to do those things. And that is only found in the context of intimacy. Not control. We address conflicts. We address challenges in the church through the lens of grace-based obedience. Striving for unity and mutual, mutual almost said mutilated, mutual edification. <laughs> it's a little tongue-in-cheek there. Another thing we should do is witness through obedient living. I don't like this idea that, you know, God regenerates people by watching Christians. It doesn't work that way. But I can tell you this, the message of the cross is ill-received if it comes alongside hate and bigotry. Ask yourself this question. What would the world say about the message of the Church of America generally? Unbelievers, what do they say? I'll tell you what they say. They say it's garbage, that it's a hot piece of trash, that it is unloving, that it is bigoted, that it is sexist, that it is hateful. You don't believe that? Just ask somebody, especially someone who claims to be in the faith or confesses, I don't want to say claim because it has a negative connotation, who confesses to be in the faith but now has been out of the local assembly of church for years. There's a reason. Beloved, I can tell you right now, and this is going to shock you, sometimes the church is the most dangerous place for a marriage. Let that sit for a minute. We'll unpack that when we get to chapter 3. But our obedience to Christ should be a witness to others. Authentic, grace-driven obedience can, is, is, is a powerful testimony. How can you love them? What are you doing? Peter talks about that, right? Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Right at the end of all these things, that's actually second letter in it. First letter, there's a lot of avoid this, avoid that, love this way, love that way. Hey, pay attention. Why is he focusing on this? Because they are Christ's sheep. They are God's children. 
And they're not bound to live the way the world lives. They're free from it. No matter the suffering, no matter the pain, no matter the, no matter the hardship, no matter the sickness. Beloved, we need each other in order to do this. When we engage in acts of service, when we live with compassion, when we love, it's not a checklist of duties. There's nothing loving about a chore. Except that the chore is done in love. But there's nothing worse than love that feels like a chore. Acts of service and love should be natural expressions of who we are in Christ. And a fourth application. I think this whole thing when we put it all down as we learn to deal with failures and setbacks. When we fail, when we are lacking, we do what? I've already given you this. We turn to Christ. We rest at His feet. Oh, how I'd love to just go into Mary and Martha for the next 20 minutes. And understand the difference in obligation, important things that need to be done versus just putting it all aside and resting at the feet of Christ. For obedience to Jesus. We are going to grow and we're going to learn every day. And we're going to grow and learn backwards, and we're going to grow and learn forwards. So we've got to avoid the trap of guilt. We've got to avoid the trap of self-condemnation. Listen to this, church. We've got to avoid the trap of judgment on ourselves and others. We've got to avoid that. Instead, we must rest in the assurance that we are sanctified by the Spirit of God according to His electing love and His foreknowledge. For the sake of being obedient to Jesus. So there's the end of the first half of that to prepare us to really look at what, it, what obedience are we talking about. And then we move on from that. We move on to that. Go into the Old Testament a little bit next week and peering into this sacrificial system and understanding what the love of God looks like in types and shadows and in the reality. Just to get a good, just to slow down. We're in no hurry. I'm not in a hurry, are you? I'm not trying to get First Peter in the books. I'm just trying to grow together with you. Two weeks ago, I unpacked the Old and New Testament view of sanctification in part. And I'm going to do the same thing a little bit in the context of obedience. As it relates to loving others. Because as we're sitting here, <coughs> I've said it three times already this morning. The point of obedience that we're discussing and always discussing is first and foremost loving your neighbor as yourself. And there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions I'm still trying to answer for my How do I love this person when they're taking advantage of me? How do I love this person who is just a real rear end? How do I love this person who's threatening me? How do I love this person who hates me? Jesus said, you've heard it said, to love your brother and to hate your enemy. But I say to you, pray for your enemy, love your enemy. You know what happened after Jesus taught that? The Pharisees went and found a woman. And according to Deuteronomy, when a woman and a man were caught in the act of adultery, they were both to be stoned to death. But they dragged the woman out let the man go. And they brought her to Jesus and they threw her naked down into the street. And so the law says she should be put to death. And Jesus responds by doodling something in the dirt. 
Now, why do they do that? Because they wanted to show that this man was a blasphemer. They wanted to show that this Jesus of Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, right? We know who your daddy really is, born out of wedlock. This is the, this is the public character of Jesus Christ according to society at his, in it, during his ministry on earth. And so you say we should love our enemies? What about this one? What about this woman? And Jesus just doodles. And all the PhDs of the world can tell you what he doodled, but they're wrong. They don't know. <laughs> Stop it. And he just looks up and he says, that's right. So anybody here who was without sin, worthy of death, without sin, because, you know, the wages of sin, they understood. Go ahead. Just toss the stone. Start. Get it started. You get it started, and the rest will follow. And he goes back to doodling in the dirt. And the scripture says that from the oldest to the least, they dropped their stones and left. And there's, there's, there's a message in that, too, that the older, the elder people, the elder men and women in the church are the examples to the younger and I may be elder to some of you, but I'm younger to some of you. We need each other. And then after they've all gone, the woman and Jesus have a little tiny dialogue. And he says, where are your accusers? They've all gone and all of your accusers are gone. I'm not going to accuse you. I'm not going to condemn you. You're free. So go and, you know, change your sinful life. Don't sin like this. You see the consequences of it, right? It's not prudent or wise. It's not condemnation. It's consequential. You're free. That's the mercy of God. The Bible says in Matthew 22, Jesus says in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus links this love of God to the love of others. So our love is demonstrated in obedience. And it's validated. Our love for God is demonstrated and validated by our love for others. I know that's rep repetitive. But it's repetitive in the Bible for a reason. And the worst thing we could do in this sermon this morning is go, okay, move on, I get it, yada, yada, yada. We get it. Well, I don't get it. I understand it. I understand the implications. But I'm still looking to land myself into this place. And so, yes, maybe I'm assuming wrongly that we're all in this together. But I hope and pray that you can see that we all need to love more. When Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, what does he say? He praises God. He praises God hands are dry. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we knew, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not just in word but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and the Lord. And you received the word of God in much pain and suffering with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you from Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything when we arrive. For they themselves report to us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God by loving others. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And he continues to talk about the appeal of the gospel. And then he goes on to say, and I want you to continue to do this. I want you to love more earnestly. To love more earnestly. So even when we're doing it well, we need to do more. But we don't need to do more out of obligation because we're not fit in the bill, we do more out of expression of the love that was given to us in the gospel. So love, 
I'll repeat myself, is an action. Not an emotion. Brothers and sisters, emotions, especially as you age, especially as you've been around, especially as you have the same people in your life for decades, emotions come and go, and if we follow the emotions, we will set the world on fire and burn it to the ground. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3.18 Love must be expressed in actions. Feelings come and go. The New Testament teaches us the nature of love. What is the nature of love as a Christian? I've already mentioned it, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What are those <coughs> adjectives there? Love is patient. <laughs> well, how am I supposed to... What's the attitude in which I approach? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. These attributes of love are explained by Paul in very practical ways. Therefore, when we see Peter unpack this letter, when he talks about that we have been, according to the electing love of God's sovereign grace, set apart by the Spirit of God Himself for the sake of obedience unto Christ and the sprinkling with His blood, we are talking about loving others. And now we see the attributes of this love of this love in practical terms love is also a reflection of god's love a reflection of god's love in 1 john 4 beloved let us love one another for love is from god and whoever loves has been born of god and knows comprehends understands god Moving right along, affection and service are pathways to love. I've already said this. I just get ahead of myself because notes are a bogged down business for me. I've already said it. Basically, love is not about feelings at all. Not about feelings at all. It's always about service. And in serving, in doing for others, the affection, the feelings come. We have a fondness. We have an emotional bond. Our bodies, beloved, listen to this. Our bodies, our physiological and biological makeup are created in such a way that when we serve others, we bond chemically. You might think, well, look at the animal kingdom. We've got some red birds, some cardinals in our property. They mate for life. And if one of them dies, they never mate again. So if unthinking, unfeeling, unintelligent, I don't want to be ugly, but you know, in comparison to human beings, unintelligent creatures have the creative makeup of bonding together and forming affection, what we would call love, how much more so are we? The image of God in us is established by the fact that we have a mind. And we know the ultimate end of that is that Christ is the image of God in us. So love is action. And the Bible teaches us that over and over again. Love is obedience to God, service and sacrifices. And you might say, well, how can I really put that into a applying method of my life? How can I make it practical for me? Here's the way I think the scripture unpacks it for us. I've already mentioned the text. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of vain conceit, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then he clarifies, let each of you look not only to his own interest, 
but also to the interests of others. When we practice that, you know what happens? We practice that from a gospel perspective of what God has done for us, how God, Psalm 40, tends and leans down and hears us and makes attention for us, how the incarnation is that God stepped into the world and created a body for himself and became like us. What does that do? What does that do? It grows us in love. It allows us to become truly authentically more than emotionally tied, but spiritually tied. And this is why I said earlier that sometimes the Church of America is one of the most dangerous places for a marriage. is because we have forgotten that. And we have butchered the gospel to placate to some sense of, of cultural idealism that really... Only a small handful of people are beginning are, are able to enjoy. <laughs> An elitism, much like Phariseeism of the day of Jesus. They enjoyed it. They reaped the benefits. So the scripture is calling for a radical reorient, reorientation of our priorities when it comes to how we love. Away from self-centeredness, away from from, oh, look at me, to a Christ-like focus on others. This is not a sentiment. It is a sentiment, but it's not just a sentiment. It's a humble and selfless consideration of others' needs and interests. And here's the beauty of it. <coughs> we can't help if we don't like it. We can't help if we don't appreciate some other people. We can't help if we have no interest, but when we are focused on the gospel and the interest of God for us. Do you think God, if he were human, would have an interest in James's hobbies? Look at all this macro photography that I did, God. Yeah, I created that. I saw it. <laughs> Look at this great chess strategy. You know what? I gave you the brain to actually create that. I mean, I, I created the rules here. Check out this math problem. I created all the ends and wheres and outs the mathematical world has never even understood. But that's not how he treats us, is it? The Bible says that Jesus looks into our lives and has an interest in the smallest of things. That if God the Father notices and is concerned with... Now, we're going to pile emotions on God now. But the Bible says that he's concerned with the fact that a sparrow falls to the ground or that one hair from our head hits the ground, that God takes note of it in his concern for us Beloved, when we see Peter talking about the gospel in just a little while, a couple of months or years or whatever, we need to recognize that it's only the gospel because God is intently and intimately concerned with us. That His glory is revealed in that intention. So now ask the question, who am I? Who am I? Well, there's a lot to be said there. When we love from that filter, it begins to become joyful. It begins to become powerful. It begins to fuel us. And you know what happens when we stop? We lose that. We become stale, we become stagnant, we become even stressed out to even engage in intimacy with someone else. The phone will ring or the doorbell will ring or somebody will see you in town or somebody will message you on social media or somebody walks up to you in the service and you go, oh, I did, oh, the thunder's rolling and I'm freaking out. You see? That is the moment where we just resolve to know the Lord's purposes. And sometimes we need help with that professionally and medically, psychologically. Sometimes it's greater than just personality. And that's okay. But when we love in those circumstances, the next time it's better 
the next time it's enjoyable, the next time we're seeking out to try to love someone like that. But we have to set boundaries in this love, right? We have to understand what the Scripture is calling us to. And as we go through 1 Peter, we will see what that looks like. But the Lord knows you. And in spite of that, the Lord loves you. Psalm 139. Let's close with that text today. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. Go to John 1. Genesis 1. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. What a pretext. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, of God, O God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Look at that authenticity. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. So if God knows us and loves us, we can love and know others. I used to pray that prayer. I used to pray a prayer out of Psalm 139, 24. Every day. Father, lay my heart as a platter before you and show me the things that do not please you. And I would wrap up that time in prayer with a little bit of fear. One, that I would see things I didn't want to see and two, that God would be disappointed in me. It's a character defect of mine. I'm sort of the center of attention in my own world and thinking that I'm not. But now I look at that in a different way. When God shows me the roach on my plate of my heart, I'm not in disgust, but I'm in delight. Because He gave Himself for me and He loved me in that way. Therefore now I can, without shame, guilt, or obligation, love you. And it makes it not just easier to stand here and to prepare for this every week, but it makes it joyous. And I can't say that was the case for the last few years. Not because of you, because of me and my view of things. But today, as we celebrate Christ's work, we do so because we know what it means to obey Him. And beloved, we'll move on from there next week. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your love and for the everlasting hope that we have because of it. Lord, thank you for allowing me to express these things and to go through all these different texts of Scripture this week to show us that obedience is truly a fruit of your work and that the main thing is to focus on loving 
ourselves that we may love others as ourselves because you have first loved us. That's how we love you. And we pray that you would guide us, that you would keep us, that you would help us to walk away from things that don't please you or that are consequence, they, they bring negative consequences in our lives. But Father, even when we do what is right, we will still suffer. But we will do so with delight, knowing that one day there is a glory that we will see that will also be a part of us. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.